I never got any money from you. Be normal. And now, Mr. Edwards, I would like to make a disclosure, which is something which has never been revealed to the public. This is The Saucer Life, exploring the history and lore of flying saucers. The Saucer Life is a podcast in which we explore concepts, events, or people from the world of flying saucers. No preconceptions, no snark, no belief, no debunking, no attempt to start a religion. This is Encounter 59. Are you responsible? Of all the contactees that we've met on this show over the past couple of years, I don't think any has had a more lasting impact than George King, which is a little odd because his name is not usually one of the first that comes up when someone tries to put together a Mount Rushmore of contactees. But the organization he established, the Aetherius Society, is still thriving today with branches all over the world. Now, if that were the only thing that was important about King's work, it would be worth taking a look at, but there's more. His contact stories are slightly askew from what we've come to expect. There are ray guns involved. And if you don't think I'm going to come back to that Mount Rushmore of contactees idea at some point down the road, then you're not paying attention. But right now, let's look at George King and the Aetherius Society. George King was born in 1919 in Shropshire, England, and from an early age, he was interested in spiritualism and meditation, and particularly, uh, he was uh, he was very into yoga. And much like his fellow contactee, George Van Tassel, King's first extraterrestrial contact experience was psychic rather than physical in nature, and it was a fairly succinct encounter, but King does a good job sort of describing the scene and and setting the whole thing up. It was about 11 a.m. on a Saturday morning, early in 1954. As is my usual practice on a Saturday morning, I was busily engaged in household chores. Not that you could call my present domicile a house, for if you wanted to swing a cat around within the yellow papered walls, then it would have to be a Manx cat, and a little one at that. I was performing a tricky feat at the time, trying to dry four plates by shuffling them about rather in the same way that one shuffles a pack of cards. Now, may I warn any independent bachelor and proud of it, lads, that such a procedure, when you come to consider their frequent breakages, costs almost as much as a wife. And this without the other amenities which are part of matrimonial union. If it's any consolation, however, I will say that sweeping up the pieces of broken china can be a very good exercise. My window was open, and the pale sunshine streamed through. The noise from the busy street below blended with the tinkling of the plate against plate in such a way as to form a symphony of materialistic activity. The type of activity, the type of noises you could hear in any town or city on the globe on a Saturday morning. It all stopped. It stopped with the startling suddenness of a pistol shot. Prepare yourself. You are to become the voice of interplanetary parliament. This was the alien sound which struck my eardrums with a somewhat gentle firmness. The ensuing silence was broken only by the shattering of plates as they slipped from my useless fingers to the floor. I cannot describe the tonal qualities of the voice which uttered this command. It came from outside of myself, from the empty space of that tiny room into my mind, with a numbing suddenness which made me grasp a chair for support. So that odd introduction, I was going to say that odd little introduction, but 
it wasn't really little. That introduction of where he's drying the dishes and making making smart remarks about sort of impoverished bachelorhood, that may be one of my favorite random bits of contactee narrative ever. So King is a little confused, not by the fact that he had sort of a message zapped into his psyche, uh, as he explained. Uh, the Bible records many such things. He was worried that he was going to be, you know, the voice of interplanetary parliament, especially since he'd never heard of interplanetary parliament. A few years later, he was uh, recounting his story for a television program in Britain, and the clip is on YouTube, and, and it's been posted by the Aetherius Society. And it's interesting, in this sort of version of the story, he connects his contact experience to the practice of yoga. It was in uh, 1954, and uh, it took me by surprise, actually. Uh, I had been practicing yoga for many years previous to this, uh, but on this uh, Saturday morning in May 1954, uh, I was in my apartment and I heard a voice. Uh, it was in English. Uh, the voice was not in the head. This was no psychic apparition. Uh, the voice was outside of myself and it said, prepare yourself. You are to become the voice of interplanetary parliament. Well, I had no idea what that meant. I knew nothing about UFOs uh, in those days. I had not studied them, but I had studied yoga. And I'd studied yoga long enough to realize that this was very important. And it was uh, eight days after this first event that I decided uh, that the only way that I could solve this mystery, because nobody else could help me, and I tried, many people, uh, was to go into meditation myself. So I locked myself in the room, uh, fully determined to stay there until I got some answer. Well, I didn't have to stay very long because a man, physical, uh, who I did recognize, he was alive in India at the time, a well-known yogi master, he walked into the room without me having to open the door, by the way, he walked across the floor and sat down in the chair, which creaked uh, under his weight. And he told me about the previous contact I'd had, voice contact, and he gave me certain instructions. Uh, for instance, he said that you will receive uh, an invitation from a yoga teacher in uh, London, um, and uh, you should attend his classes and so on. I have had some physical contacts as well as mental contacts. Very briefly, the mental contacts are quite unusual in a way that I precipitate a yogic somatic condition in order to gain mental rapport with higher intelligences. The man or yogi master who King mentions coming into his room in that clip had a message for him that he relayed in his later writings. The real necessities of the age, brought about by the unfeeling march of science into the realms of the atom and the wrong thought and action of the masses, can be met only by those few who are ready to tune in to those emanations now being sent to this earth and become the servants 
of the Cosmic Masters. You are one of the many called upon to prepare yourself for the coming conflict between the materialistic scientist who has arrived at his conclusions by the cold application of mathematics and the occult scientist who has arrived at his conclusions through the recognition that God is all. Pray, be still, meditate, and open the door of your heart and mind to the precious waters of truth. So King had physical contacts, and he had psychic contacts, and he also channeled people as well, including the master Aetherius, who will loom large in King's story as we continue. In 1959, uh, in a program for the BBC called Venus and Mars Speak to Earth, I believe was the title, King channeled Aetherius, probably it was live on television, and it's great because he's doing this interview with the host of the show, and he when it, when it's time to to channel the master Aetherius, he puts on these sort of sunglasses and is silent for nearly a minute before he sort of groans and and starts speaking. And we've got a little bit of that uh, of that right here. And uh, there's a link to the full clip in the show notes as well. This is. This is interesting stuff because you've already heard King's voice earlier. This is not King's voice. This is the master Aetherius and the BBC presenter who is interviewing him. I am known as Aetherius. Where do you come from? The planet Venus. Where are you speaking from now? I'm sorry, my dear friend, I cannot answer that question for you. I had wondered simply whether you were in a vehicle of some kind, of a spaceship described by Mr. King when he was talking to me, or whether you were in your normal abode. But you can't tell me that? Uh, no. You do travel normally in what Mr. King has described as flying saucers when you move about space, do you? Yes, that is quite correct. We have indeed been visiting this earth of yours for some 18 million of your earth years. And when you come here, what is your purpose in coming? At the moment, Earth, as you call it, faces a certain situation. The situation can be described as rather a dangerous one. You are liable to upset the balance of your Earth through number one, atomic experimentation, and number two, your deviation from the spiritual laws. And your visits are designed to warn us against this? Yes. 
Is there one single message that you would like to give us this evening? I'm afraid it must be brief. You'll understand that. Yes. I would like to say this. If you are a Christian, then live the laws as laid down by Jesus. If you are a Buddhist, live the laws as laid down by Buddha. <clears throat> if you are a Hindu, then be the best Hindu. This procedure is the one true way for men of earth to save themselves from their lower aspects. Thank you, Atherius, very much indeed. Good night. Good night. If you check out the entire program, be sure to watch the facial expressions of the BBC presenter during the channeled portions of the episode, because it it's really very admirable how well he keeps his composure in the face of some of this. Now, like a lot of contactees, King wrote a lot of things, but the book we're going to focus on um, for most of this episode is a, a book from 1961 called You Are Responsible. And the title came complete with that exclamation point at the end. It has a very striking cover. And if you look at our Instagram feed at Saucer Life, you can see it. And it sets out the basic message of what King is trying to do. In the background, there's a mushroom cloud dominating a city. In the foreground, a silhouetted mob pulls down a huge sort of three-dimensional cross. And the bottom quarter of the cover is taken up by a statement attributed to, in all caps, a man from Mars. These are the last days of the old order. The new order for you will be greater peace, greater joy, conditions beyond your wild imaginings, or rebirth upon a younger world to relive the terrors of the history you have made upon this planet. Choose and act. The sort of emphatic title and the preface on the cover from King's Martian Messenger are a little sharper and more forceful than a lot of other contactee writings. While most contactee writings do place a lot of responsibility for change squarely on humanity's shoulders, this is a little more pushy. And also interesting is the use of reincarnation as a threat that we will be reborn to live the, the violent horrors of Earth's history over and over again. King's purpose in writing You Are Responsible is to serve as a conduit from what he calls the great teachers who provide humanity with a way out of its troubles to the people of Earth because, quote, the age of atomic chaos that humanity finds itself in means that earth people have to quote, turn the tide away from the great cataclysm. It is so surely making for itself. So the message and the call to action come from the master Ethereus, who we heard King channel back in 1959 and, or a couple minutes ago. And Ethereus is from Venus, but what does the name Ethereus signify? According to King, 
humanity is not ready for that information. This name was chosen because of a deep occult significance which cannot be revealed at this stage. Those who know the underlying reason for the action will appreciate the need for secrecy. This assertion, while involving a, a pretty fun degree of circular logic, is representative of the way King promotes the importance of spiritual and esoteric knowledge. Meditation is the key to the door of all knowledge, whether it be the details of the propulsion units of a flying saucer or why some potatoes have more eyes than others. Everybody can learn these techniques and enable themselves to, quote, translate the thoughts of a member of the interplanetary parliament and speak to them, end quote. King and the group he would form, the Aetherius Society, were a source for information on these techniques, and, and many of their publications were, and still are, devoted to teaching this kind of meditation. You Are Responsible is made up of two sections. Part 1 introduces Master Aetherius and the connections between yoga and telepathy. It also recounts King's first trip to Venus and a story about sinister beings attacking friendly beings on Mars. Part two is given over to typical contacty discussion of world events, life ways of the Venusians and other races, and answers to potential reader questions about the motivations of these particular space brothers. King's account of his first interplanetary voyage wherein he goes to Venus is also his opportunity to explain why his particular version of space travel, psychic space travel, is more efficient than the clunky old spaceships that look like they were made out of hubcaps. Interplanetary travel is not a mere futuristic pipe dream. It is a practical possibility to all those who are willing to sacrifice some so-called luxuries of civilization and exert sufficient effort in order to bring it about. Why wait until science has made a lumbering monstrosity driven by pure brute force? Already you have at your command a vessel capable of attaining the speed of light, driven by the subtle forces of thought which will cover the Earth-Mars distance in seconds. On his first voyage, George met Patana, a spirit being on Venus who took him to the Temple of Solus, from which came the, quote, outpourings of the supreme logos of the planet Venus, end quote. Patana also told him of the masters of Venus who originally hailed from Saturn. I wonder if they knew Howard Menger's previous incarnation. Probably not. Anyway, in the temple, the masters, quote, relay the power under their students in a degree determined by their readiness to absorb it. While a visit to the Temple of Solus is fairly interesting, kind of, a little, the best thing in part one of You Are Responsible, maybe the best thing in any contact ebook ever, is chapter four which is entitled A Mars Story. This may be the closest a contactee book ever gets to space opera-style science fiction, rather than Day the Earth Stood Still science fiction. As we know, contactee books at their worst, or best, depending on your point of view, usually sound more like philosophical treatises than they sound like Buck Rogers in the 25th century. George King's Mars story is an interesting exception to this. In fact, King pretty much anticipates how much this story is going to sound like fiction and introduces it by trying to sort of diffuse that particular issue. 
To those readers who would say that the following account is a piece of imaginative science fiction, let me counter it once with this trite rejoinder. Truth is stranger than fiction. The master Etherius says that there is no such thing as pure fiction, because everything must contain an element of truth. Well, at least he recognizes that his rejoinder is trite. And Master Etherius's little maxim is a nice bit of sophistry that I'm going to have to remember to use next time I just want to make something up. Just a little break here to remind you that you can check out past episodes, read some reviews of saucer-related nonsense, and support the show at saucerlife.com. Thank you to those who have thrown some money our way in the last few months. Really appreciate it. You can follow us on Twitter and Instagram at Saucer Life or email us at thesaucerlife at gmail.com. And you can subscribe to the show wherever you find podcasts, including iTunes, Google Play, etc. And a special welcome to those of you who have discovered the show through the talks I've been giving at some libraries in the uh, Michigan area over the course of the summer. Next time, we finish up this particular collection of contactees with Orfeo Angelucci, a fellow about whom there has been a ton of requests since we started the show. After that, I've got a couple ideas. Um, might be throwing a poll up on social media to let people figure it out if I can't decide what I want to do. But for right now, let's get back to George King. So, the Mars story. It all starts when King attempts to reach Mars through his usual method of sort of telepathic psychic space transport. He lands on a body he believes to be one of Mars's moons. Exploring the area, he finds a building and, being curious, goes into it, and he realizes his mistake as red lights flood the corridor in which he is standing. This flood of intense red light seemed to struggle to penetrate my whole etheric structure. I knew beyond doubt that my presence had been detected. In the same instant, a dwarf figure appeared in the black opening, raised a weapon, and fired point-blank at me without appearing to take any sort of aim. It was as though I had been unmolested until my exploration had brought me to a chosen spot, and then the screen had suddenly been switched on, and the dwarf had fired at me instantaneously. There was no time lag whatever between the two occurrences. It was similar to a flashlight camera in which the shutter operates simultaneously with the flash bulb. Who among us has not teleported mentally to Mars or one of its moons and upon landing been shot at by a dwarf with a ray gun? I mean, it's just one of those things. Anyway, using the power of his mind, George is able to pull his essence back to his physical body back in London and after some treatment from, quote, excellent spiritual healers was back to his old self with no sort of negative effects. Eventually, he goes back to Mars, the real one this time, rather than a dwarf-infested death zone, and is invited to a meeting of the General Assembly of Mars, which was discussing a great threat to their planet. A strange planetoid composed of intensely dangerous material was headed for Mars, and the planetoid proved to be a piloted device when it destroyed a crude Martian spacecraft. And this is one of those moments where I realize what I wrote in the script doesn't make 
any sense because of the whole homophone thing. When I say crewed Martian spacecraft, I mean a spacecraft that had a crew of Martians, not a crudely built Martian spacecraft. Anyway, the Martians continue to investigate and they're talking with King, who has earned their trust because he's been to the Temple of Solace, and they decide that King's previous encounter with the laser-wielding dwarf had been something that happened on this asteroid that had destroyed their ship. So the Martians are planning a counterattack, and King convinces them that he needs to be on the mission since he's already encountered the enemy. And as the planning commences, King is a bit confused and says, quote, This was my first problem in interplanetary military strategy, and it gave me a worse headache than if I had imbibed a quart of whiskey and port wine. End quote. Dear listener, that is something that is only said by somebody who has had a massive hangover caused by drinking a quart of whiskey and port wine. So, King boards the saucer, telepathically, uh, from Venus with a mixed Venusian and Martian crew. And the Venusian ship is capable of traveling faster than light, making it the only logical choice to intercept the evil planetoid filled with dwarfs. The ship engages in violent combat with the planetoid and destroys it. And although this is a troubling, violent, sort of action-packed story, King tells us, the reader, that the great master who told him to write this story into his book did so because as humans begin to travel in space, which by 1961 was something that was happening, they needed to know about the dangers they would face. So, the planetoid, King explains, was built by four evil dictators who controlled a planet called Garouche, which is located across the galaxy from Earth. The planetoid was intended to destroy the Earth, but it didn't, because the Martians saved us. But 174 Martians died on the mission. So, why were the... Garouche people attacking Earth. King explains it's because Earth has a lot of oceans and the Garouche are a water-based species, and so Earth would have been an ideal base of operations. Mars and Venus, supported by the Great Masters, who are from Saturn, saved the human race and the planet Earth. We don't see anything like this in most contactee stories. And this combination of, of, of typical contactee story with, you know, sort of Star Trek-like space opera is pretty rare. George Adamski's Pioneers of Space from 1946, for example, while it was a science fiction tale, was a travelogue more than an action story. And more than a lot of contactee books... The Mars story chapter in You Are Responsible is influenced by the science fiction literature and film of the time. The tale of the dangerous planetoid, blue beam firing ray guns, and an interplanetary fleet defending Earth from attack is maybe the closest that contact ebooks of the time come to just sort of outright aping the science fiction tropes of that period. And it seems weird 
for King to go in this direction, as the rest of the book is very stereotypical contacty stuff. What I think is that the space battles sort of set the book apart and is kind of a hook to grab the reader. I mean, we're in 1961. We've had Adamski and Bethram and Menger and Van Tassel, and people who read these kind of books had read a lot of these kind of books, and they're used to them, and they know what they're expecting. But the lethal encounter on the dangerous planetoid with murderous enemies of Earth sort of undermines the reader's expectations, and it's it's kind of a a shock of action before settling back into being, you know, talked at and lectured by Space Brothers. We should remember, though, that the idea of Earth having extraterrestrial protectors is not unheard of. Um, it's basically the foundation of the Ashtar mythology, for example. What sets King's account of it apart is, is just this unbridled action-adventure style that he writes in. So the second part of You Are Responsible consists of a series of, of answer and question sessions and conversations between a narrator, presumably King, but meant to represent questions the average reader might have, and Master Aetherius. And it's in this part of the book where what we might call the sort of generic contacty philosophy or worldview comes forward. At one point, for example, Master Aetherius explains why humanity must cease nuclear testing. But the reasons he gives are different than what I've seen in other contactee books. And I think, again, we're in 1961 now, reflects a more nuanced and sophisticated view of how radiation works, for example. There is yet another important aspect of possibilities worthy of the most urgent consideration. Some of you are no doubt conversant with the ancient study of astrology and will realize the importance of emanations from the various constellations. If these emanations are grossly affected, then you will have mutation on the psychomental and mentophysical levels. At the present time, some of your scientists see a change taking place in the physical bodies of certain people. People are being born of neither one sex nor the other. Animals are being born freaks. Plants are being brought into being in a freakish way. The change, up to the present, is slow and rather subtle. But if your complicated system of natural filters is disturbed too suddenly to a great extent, then you will have many hundreds of cases of physical mutation of man. You will have children born with two, three, or four heads. I would rather not go into the ghastly details. This matter must certainly be taken into serious consideration. Okay, so we're all gonna turn into nuclear freaks. That's not great, but at least, you know, our minds are going to be okay, right? As a result of atomic release, mutation will take place in the cellular structure of the human brain, and this, in turn, will have its mental repercussions. Types of mentalities will suddenly be born, capable of attracting the kind of mind which, at present, they are not ready to attract, and they will use that mind very wrongly. 
Others will be born capable of attracting the lowest of all forms of mind, the negative minus type of mind, and they will be able to translate that mind and use it wrongly. This could have repercussions throughout the whole planetary system. It is important that you should realize these things, and as a result of this realization, you should keep your minds under strict control. You should also teach your children to keep their minds under strict control, so that the factors which bring about mind mutation, however slight, cannot have such a disastrous effect. You are just as dependent upon the magnetic influences from Mars, Venus, Mercury, Saturn, Jupiter, Uranus, Neptune, and Pluto as you are upon your grocer. I ask seriously all of you to consider this fact. The questioner then asks, quote, Suppose atomic experimentation was stopped. Then how do we protect ourselves in case of war? The master has an answer for this. Two sides are needed to fight a war. Not only one side, two. If you people, this moment, could have a hundred percent faith in truth, light, and love, you could easily throw away all your weapons, you could easily dispense with all your foolish nuclear toothpicks, and still be victors of the universe. If this were not so, then all your masters were fools, and we know they were not. This type of argument is, if you're paying attention, not unusual for the contactee crowd. King, however, was known for far more than this or that specific contact experience or story. King, like Adamski, lectured internationally. Unlike Adamski, however, King was able to establish an organizational infrastructure that continues to promulgate his spiritual view and those of the Cosmic Masters to this very day. This organization is the Aetherius Society. Although King and his organization would eventually establish a headquarters in Los Angeles, King began the process of developing the religious movement which would become known as the Society in Britain after a July 1958 contact between King and Master Jesus. The result of this meeting was an event called Operation Starlight, which had a goal of charging mountains with cosmic energy for the good of humanity. The Aetherius Society and George King left Britain in 1959, embarking on worldwide speaking tours and eventually settling in L.A., and the organization continued to gain members at a pretty steady rate, and today, according to their website, there are branches and spiritual centers on nearly every continent, from Royal Oak, Michigan to Nigeria. And throughout their history, the Aetherius Society has emphasized the need for work and dedication to the teachings of Master Aetherius and to spiritual and esoteric disciplines. During the early 1960s, King began to formalize the teachings and goals and aims of the society, and in 1964, according to the Aetherius Society's website, the Earth received its primary initiation, and that website explains what this means far better than I can.
In the Aetherius Society, July 8th is regarded as the holiest day of the year. On this day in 1964, the Mother Earth, the living goddess beneath our feet, received her primary initiation, which is the most important initiation she has received since her inception as a planet. Colossal spiritual energies of an extremely high frequency were radiated by the gods from space, not to those living on the Earth, but to the Earth as an intelligence. In fact, humankind had to be screened off from these energies because we would not have been able to withstand their tremendous spiritual power. So that we can continue to live upon our back, the Mother Earth keeps these energies in a state of dormancy or near dormancy. If she were to take full advantage of the initiation she received, which she has every right to do, conditions on Earth would change, such that we could no longer live here. She is holding her evolution up, sacrificing the unimaginable bliss she fully deserves, and suffering greatly as a result, in order to help us gain experience. If we were not so spiritually backward, this sacrifice would not be necessary. She will not be allowed, by karmic law, to hold up her progress indefinitely, and the gradual release of her energies has already begun, when, after the coming of the next master, those advanced souls who remain on earth enjoy the wondrous glory of the power she releases, this will be the dawning of a new age in the highest sense of the term. Humankind and planet will live in harmony with one another, and in full and open cooperation with the gods from space. Now, religious studies scholar John A. Salba, writing in a 1999 article about the worldview of the Aetherius Society, summarized these teachings that they held from a number of their publications from the early 1960s, and it included things such as, quote, to spread the teachings of the Master Aetherius, Jesus, and other cosmic masters, to administer spiritual healing, to prepare the way for the coming of the next master to organize the society so as to create favorable conditions for closer contact and ultimately meetings with people from other planets, and so on and so forth. And there's a link to the full article in the show notes, and it's worth checking out, particularly for some comparisons about how the Aetherius Society differs from the popular conception of a UFO cult, such as, oh, I don't know, Heaven's Gate. Actually, I think it's a good idea to look at the Aetherius Society's response to the Heaven's Gate situation and the events surrounding the Hale-Bopp comet. It's really interesting, I think. Don't look for a spacecraft following Hale-Bopp and don't expect the second coming or the end of the world to follow either. The Aetherius Society believes in many things which remain foreign to modern science. However, it is important to use all of one's mental resources when looking at new theories not just imagination and hope. Here, the leaders of the Aetherius Society, while acknowledging that their views are outside the mainstream of modern thought, advocate discernment in seeking knowledge. And crucially, they're telling people who are seeking knowledge not to rely on imagination and hope, which ironically is what critics often accuse contactees and their followers of doing. The path to enlightenment, they argue, is not simply going to just appear on a map and drop into your hands out of nowhere. In these days of rapid technological growth, especially in the West, we see technology advancing faster than spiritual growth. This is creating a very dangerous imbalance. This has, of course, been noticed and written about by many. The mass suicide in San Diego is just another example of this trend. 
So a seeker must test the information, must weigh the information given to them, no matter how much they may want to believe what they're hearing. This is a skeptical and nearly sort of rational sounding approach to these ideas. And significantly, the statement from the Ethereum Society never makes any outright claim that they're the only path to truth or enlightenment. Rather, they, they put the responsibility on the person seeking the enlightenment to do the work themselves to ensure they're on the correct path. Are the others in the group, religion or church, helping others, or mainly themselves? And if they all wear Nikes, put your hiking boots back on and take a hike. So while the Aetherius Society has continued to hold to the teachings and ideas of George King, they have also sort of updated the things they're concerned about to be more reflective of the concerns of the 21st century world rather than the 20th century Cold War world. Our world is desperately out of balance. A relative handful of wealthy Westerners have control of an unprecedented share of the world's resources, while millions, if not billions, suffer starvation or lack decent living standards. Our world is accelerating into a world of selfishness and materialistic hedonism, causing an increase in violence and terrorism around the world, and a rapid depletion of Earth's resources. The increase in worldwide pollution and violence... The decrease of Earth's resources such as oil and forests, combined with the rapid increase in consumerism, is propelling us down a dangerous and deadly slope to disaster. So the Ethereum Society is an organization that, while being focused and based in a contactee narrative, has continued to evolve into the 21st century. And George King's legacy is different from that of other contactees. Yeah, there are still Ashtar channelers, and the George Adamski Foundation continues to promote the authenticity of his hubcap photographs. But the reach and longevity of the Ethereum Society really is without equal. George King's saucer life became a worldwide spiritual organization, quietly doing its work, demonstrating the surprising depth and complexity that a saucer life could have. In the show notes, there are links to King's writings and the extensive website of the Ethereum Society, uh, as well as to YouTube for some of the television appearances he made. Uh, you can get that in the show notes on your podcast app and at saucerlife.com. The Saucer Life Encounter 59 featured the voice of Nelson Sinat and is a production of Chizo Media LLC. Chizo Media, working for the good of mankind along the lines of truth. Till next time, keep watching the skies because you might wind up psychically transported to a planetoid where a dwarf shoots at you with a laser gun.